This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Do you kind of feel like you're just lifting your head out of your den, your dirt hole after hibernating? Feels like we've been hibernating for two years. Uh, It's spring is what I'm saying. It's a new season and uh, I'm Martin Strong and this is Vancouver Consumer. And it makes you ask the question when it's spring, what's ahead? There's lots of questions about things like real estate. Where is that heading? And what is your property going to be worth in the year and the years ahead? Well, up next, uh, we are going to talk to Dan Jones from Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Dan always has some good insight into the state of our real estate market and why having a professional real estate appraiser like Campbell and Pound on your side can make all the difference. That's coming up. But first, some of the consumer news headlines from the past week. And I don't have to tell you, we pay some of the highest gas prices in Canada here in BC, but we're getting a bit of a break. Premier John Horgan yesterday announced that drivers in BC will soon get a one-time $110 ICBC rebate. This is all after weeks of record-breaking gas prices. Commercial drivers will get $165, which if you drive for a living might not seem like a lot. The Premier says Vladimir Putin's illegal war on Ukraine has had a chain reaction on the BC economy, though Horgan did not announce any changes to April's carbon tax increase. If you're a driver, you can expect this rebate to be deposited into your account in May, or you might get a check in the mail. That would be in June. The cost of taking a bus is going up, along with everything else. TransLink is raising fares for everyone who takes transit around Metro Vancouver, including buses, SkyTrain, SeaBus, West Coast Express, and HandyDart. TransLink's Board of Governors has approved an average 2.3% increase. It'll take effect July 1st. 2.3% doesn't sound like much, but it will mean people who regularly commute, especially between Surrey and Vancouver, uh, they will pay about $50 more per year for their monthly passes. The biggest rate increases are for people who use the West Coast Express, especially people who travel between Mission and Vancouver every day. A monthly five-zone pass on the West Coast Express is going up just over 8 bucks to 358 bucks a month. That's almost 100 bucks more per year. It just got a lot easier to test yourself for COVID. Anyone 18 years or older in BC can now pick up COVID-19 rapid test kits from community pharmacies. You can get one package containing five test kits every 28 days. And imagine you're at home. It's really late and everyone else in the house is asleep. You're in bed, you're awake, and you remember you have a scratch and win lottery ticket you haven't checked yet. So you're in bed, it's late, everyone's asleep, you scratch it. And you discover that you've just won not $2 or $5, but $150,000. Erin Robinson was visiting her parents when it happened, and she won the 150 grand while playing BCLC's Bingo Supreme. And as I mentioned, she was sitting there in bed. She was in shock, uh, but it was really late, and she didn't know whether to wake up everybody to tell them because they were all asleep. 
even though she couldn't go to sleep at all. So finally, she waits until 6 a.m., and she couldn't wait any longer. She went in, woke up her mom, and told her about the 150 grand. Aaron bought the winning lottery ticket from the Safeway on Fraser Highway in Langley. She says the first thing she was going to do uh, was take her family out for a big, expensive dinner, and then she would book a tropical Hawaiian vacation. It's been a good month for uh, for all sorts of lottery players, not just scratch and win players, but the Lotto 649 uh, has been pretty good. Uh, someone from Vancouver is $6 million richer. Uh, an uncle and nephew duo won $8 million in the March 9th draw. This is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. And when we come back, some great insight into our real estate market from Dan Jones. He's with Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. We'll talk to him next. Welcome back. It is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. And when you look at businesses, they often brag about how long they've been in business since 1985. Well, our guest right now is from a business that started in Vancouver in 1939. Campbell and Pound originated in 39 as a real estate sales insurance brokerage and notary public office. In 1961, they began specializing in all aspects of real estate appraisal and have since become the name in Vancouver when you need to know the real value of a piece of property. And from Campbell and Pound, their business coordinator and president, Dan Jones, is with me. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm just great today, Martin. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. And, uh, you know, talking about it, be working at a business that has been in Vancouver since 1939, um, do you feel any kind of sort of pressure or, or do you, do you sort of feel the ghosts in the hallways from, from the days gone past? Well, yeah, yeah it's very interesting because, you know, my father was, was the president CFO of, of the company until about 1986 when I took over. And uh, before him, um, the, the fellow named Robert Pound was, was, the, was the president of the company. And um, back in the 30s and the 40s, of course, real estate brokerages in Vancouver were, were names of individuals that were, were managing their brokerages. They didn't have the umbrella uh, sales uh, like like a Remax Sutton groups or uh, Block Brothers in the in the seventies, those types of things. They were right. they were individuals like E A Elm and L L Buttress Realty and and uh, Camel and Pound. There was a group of um, uh, well known realtors got together and they thought that they would come up with this idea called the multiple listing service because. Every realtor would come home. I remember my dad would come home and he'd have his three-ring binder and they'd have this giant Heidelberg press down at the real estate board trying to pump out these sort of pretty pretty low-quality <laughs> uh, pictures of houses with, with <laughs> minim, minimal descriptions on them. And, and they would, you know, each realtor would be trying to put together their own MLS, if you will. And then between that and picking up the phone and phoning their uh, their uh, colleagues and trying to trying to figure out what they had listed and what they had sold they would try to put it all together without computers back in those days so um word has it that uh, the multiple listing service actually started right here in vancouver uh, amongst those eight to ten uh prominent realtors at the time 
Wow, that's that's a really interesting factoid that yeah. the MLS yeah. may have some some, or, some or origins right here. Yeah, right in Vancouver. That's true, and it's worldwide now. Yeah, and when when you think about back in '39, those people dealing with real estate, um, what do you think they would if they could come back and see what's going on in the Lower Mainland with real estate, um, with with the crazy prices that we're seeing? Do you think that they would go, yeah, that's just real estate, or do you think they would be <laughs> would their minds be blown? Well, I, I think the last, the the latter. Uh, I know even my father would be. Uh, I remember when he thought getting five hundred thousand for a piece of real estate was just really out of this world and crazy, you know. So look where we are now. I mean, the average price in Vancouver is is much over one point five million now. So, yeah, and it know, seems so out of step with what people are earning. It just uh, it's it seems unsustainable. But I, but people have been saying that for a long time. They have, and uh, you know we we've. We've experienced, uh, at least in my lifetime, I've experienced uh, three to four different types of recessions. And uh, whenever that happens, it, it always brought people back down to earth and um, sort of, I guess, brought the real estate more in tune with people's rev- uh, revenue that they were earning or the income that they were producing, you know. And uh, I, it's a long way of agreeing with you that it's, it it does feel very out of step with uh, the amount of real estate you can buy now with with X number of years annual salaries is uh, quite a bit less than it was. We're talking know, to de- Dan- decades ago. Yeah, we're we're talking to Dan Jones, the president of Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. You can find them online at Campbell-Pound.com. They are the experts in evaluating real estate. And, uh, I mean, I, I'll get your, your take on what's going on now. I mean, it seems like we're slowly coming out of COVID and, uh, we saw the market just, just heat up a blazing and there are indications that things are slowly kind of, uh, sort of cooling off, but they're cooling off such a red hot market. Things are really, really still very expensive. So what's your take on what's happening now? What, what do you believe is, is next for Vancouver real estate? Boy, if I knew that, I'd be uh, <laughs> probably in a different business at, at this point. I mean, I think that's always, that's always the thing that appraisers get um, uh, misinterpreted about, you know, is that, that we uh, have a crystal ball and that, oh, you must know what's going to happen next because, you know, you see so much data every day. And data, as you know, is is really important in, in trying to figure out what what's trending and, you know, are we going up, are we going down, are we constant, are we doing a hybrid, what, what is happening? And what we do is we look at the historical past of the data and we look at the current trends and, and we try to do that. We try to uh, figure out where we're going into the future. But, you know, what I can tell you is when we go back, this pandemic was a really different type of interruption into the real estate market. And when it happened, I mean, I, as many of my colleagues, were completely wrong on what we we predicted, you know, back in that March 2020 um, dark days of, of this COVID-19 thing when it first hit. I think we all thought we were going into heavy depression, or not depression, recession. And uh, when when we were uh, pleasantly surprised to find out that... Um, 
the real estate market started to pick up three to four months later, and it just hasn't stopped since. Um, the big change I noticed, and Campbell and Pound has seen, uh, you know, in our trending of data, was that uh, we were all considering watching the market when the borders were closed, and it was only exclusively uh, purchasers and sellers that were Canadian. Um, once we were all wondering what was going to happen when the borders opened and all of a sudden you got Japan, Asia, and uh, all of Europe, um, the United States, um, all into our market. Um, and they, you know, that wasn't happening all during 2020 and parts, the first part of uh, 2021. So, uh, we already had a tremendous, uh, you know, tremendously high buyer demand going on with, really um, a, a poor selection of real estate or, or a low inventory, um, the, the number of listings. And everybody knows we have a housing problem in Vancouver because the supply is is lower than it, than it should be. If the supply was higher, we would have more people in the homes and it would, be, it would balance out the demand. Uh, as, it's, as it stands over the last couple of years, um, the demand has just outstripped the, the supply uh, threefold, you know, and it's it just hasn't stopped, and hence we've got uh, everybody and all kinds of different committees and municipalities, municipal governments, provincial governments, and federal governments trying to figure out a way to to stabilize this real estate market and get uh, more first time home buyers into it. So, how does a market like this affect uh, a real estate appraiser? Um, does it just mean that Campbell and Pound is exceptionally busy in these kind of red hot market days? What What's different now than there was, say, fifteen years ago? Well, that last point was is well taken, and that's true. Um, I would say Campbell and Pound is not exclusive to being busier. I think every single realtor. Every single uh, real estate analyst, consultant, and real estate appraiser and economists are um, twice as busy as they normally would be, and that's really just based on on the facts that uh, there's so many more transactions taking place, more purchases, um, lots of refinancing with the the interest rates just going up. Uh, you know, uh, a little while ago we had we had the five year uh, five-year rate double from where it was one year ago. And uh, as soon as they announce that it's coming, of course, everybody gets off the fence and decides to refinance. So they might not be selling their property, but they might be applying for a line of credit or they might be just, let, let's just refinance or break into our mortgage with only a year or two. But, you know, um, you probably should be talking to your lender or your mortgage broker for that type of information because they're the ones that are professional in that regard and they can figure out penalties and all that type of thing but that created a lot of work for real estate appraisers right across canada not just in uh, vancouver or even in bc alone right right and campbell and pound works with all sorts of clients from you know single uh, clients to commercial clients what are some typical situations where people need campbell and pound to get something appraised and why oh there's there's lots of reasons i mean we're we're we're, we're usually utilized um, in most cases um, in, in the litigation process, whether it's uh, a simple uh, husband and wife um, asset settlement, you know, through, through divorce, uh, estate sales when property is passed along to family members, 
uh, or disposed of because of a, a death in the family or inheritance, that type of thing, um, the the fair way to do it is, is to figure out what all the assets are worth currently. And then there's tax reasons. Many accountants need to uh, figure out, you know, if, is there a capital gain involved if a property is disposed of? If that's the case, we have to figure out what the property sold for now uh, versus what it was acquired for. And if the property was acquired years ago, um, that can be a completely, that's what we call a retrospective valuation. Um, we, we go as far back as the Capital Gains Act uh, names December 31st, 1971, as the first time that Canadians paid capital gains. And, uh, well, I can tell you there's a big difference between what a piece of property was worth in 1971 <laughs> than what it's worth today <laughs> for calculation. And the most common reason uh, to your question is probably for financing for purchase. First-time home buyers, second investment uh, purchasers all need a mortgage. And when they go for a mortgage, whether it's a bank, credit union, trust company, or a uh, mortgage broker, um, we'll figure out uh, what payments are going to be and what the terms and conditions of the mortgage is going to be. And they will order an appraisal to figure out uh, what the position of that mortgage will be in, in terms of what we call a loan-to-value ratio. And that's, again, an expertise of, of a lender or a mortgage broker. And when they figure that out, they, uh, they will uh, order an appraisal right. uh, many times. <laughs> yeah, I can't stop thinking about the difference in value from a house in 1971 in Vancouver to now. So right. if someone's been holding on to it for that long, uh, that must be insane. Uh, we're talking to Dan Jones, the president and business coordinator of Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. You can find out everything they can do at campbell-pound.com. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more with Dan about uh, how they keep up with this market. How do you keep up uh, with with prices going up? How do you know what things are worth and, and what makes your house worth more? We'll have more with Dan Jones when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong, and this is Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. We're talking to Dan Jones, the president and business coordinator of Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Campbell-Pound.com is where you'll find them on the net. And uh, we're just talking about, uh, you know, keeping tabs on what property is worth in this crazy market we call the Lower Mainland. And uh, Dan, I imagine when you drive down the street, do you just look at houses and go, 1.2, uh, 1.4? <laughs> no, I'd, like, I'd like to do that. But I mean, there, there are so many variables that go in, going into pinpointing value um, and trying to, I mean, all we're trying to do is put our shoes in the, in, in our feet in the shoes of a purchaser. So whatever it is that, makes them press a button or, or makes them make an offer, those are the items in a house that, uh, you know, are extraordinary and, and will, you know, appraisers highlight. We, we call the word contributory value. And what I mean by that is what is it that contributes to the purchase? How much is that contributory value? And does that equal what something would cost? And quite often, there are two are very, very separate items. So, 
you know, you'll get a, a, a swimming pool is one of my favorite example. Somebody will spend $100,000 because they've got teenagers and they love to swim and, and, and be around the family all summer and, um, you know, with all the cabanas and the sand filters and the, 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 the heating equipment, everything, diving boards, maybe $100,000. In Vancouver, we only utilize those pools probably about a third of the year. And uh, in in what an appraiser calls a paired sales analysis, we'll compare all the, all the homes in that same neighborhood where that pool property sells, and we'll compare the sales of properties that sold with pools versus the ones without, and all other items being equal and variables. We, uh, we try to put a, a number on what the contributory value of that pool was. And the contributory value we found for pools is usually... Usually about a third, you know, it's probably between wow. twenty-five and forty thousand, or somewhere in that range. Uh, very seldom do do the owners get their full value back, and there's there's some reasons for that. I mean, people that are senior citizens are kind of over it. Um, they're not that interested on a fixed income and spending a lot of money on, on heating the pool all the time and keeping it maintained and weekly servicing with a with a pool agent and all that type of thing. And then very young families where you've got toddlers, of course, everybody knows that it's um, it, it can be quite dangerous to have toddlers around. They have to be watched like 100% of the time. Uh, they can be considered a safety hazard to, to young families. So they're not much interested in buying the property with the pool. So there's this sort of limited market in between, um, I'll say 12 years old and, and – uh, and adulthood um, in, in families that are really fired up about buying a swimming pool. Right. So, and, and that's probably the reason why the contributory value isn't as high as, say, if you paint the house or if you put a new kitchen in or something like that, right? Yeah. So, th- so let's talk about contributory value, the, the high earners for your, the value of your house. And I think you probably said the, the easiest thing was slapping a coat of paint on a house. That's right. It's probably the one item that returns uh, the most. It actually can return more than the cost of the paint and the and the labor to put it on. So if you have a house that's cosmetically not very uh, easy to look at because the deferred maintenance has sort of been let go um, with deferred maintenance, you find that just by simply throwing a coat of paint on the exterior and the interior itself will probably return you more than what your costs were. Um, so that's probably the, the easiest and simplest way to understand um, uh, return on expense or contributory value, as we call it. Um, there are other areas where, swim, you know, we, we talked about swimming pool. Kitchens are probably as high as 75%. Um, right. And in some cases, depends on how old the house is. If the house is really, really, really old, um, you know, the return can be greater on that house getting a, a, you know, I always say to my appraisers, okay, like we have to establish an effective age on this house. Um, so I always say to them, like, I want you to imagine me dropping you in there blindfolded in the middle of the house. And then you take a, a look around and you look at the materials and the workmanship and the quality. And if it looks like a brand new apartment or a brand new home inside, but yet you know the house is 100 years old chronologically, 
um, it's pretty hard to say it's brand new. We wouldn't say it has zero years of uh, aging, but we might say it's 10 years old, for example. Um, And if you take that same kitchen and you throw it into a house that's maybe only 15 years old that was already already had a kitchen in it that was pretty good, um, you'll find that the return or the contributory value on that same kitchen might be less because it already had a fairly high-value uh, kitchen in it before you tore the old one out and just were trying to sort of move from the 19, uh, early 2000s until now, for example. You know, right. So, so houses they have their chronological age and their kind of conditional age. Yeah, we call it effective age. So we know that every time somebody does something to a home to upgrade it, I'll use wire, simple wiring. We used to have two knob and tube wiring, which building inspectors will tell you is is a nightmare, and fire departments don't like it. Uh, and uh, you know, just just upgrading the wiring um, and, and breaker box systems to a house um, extends the life of the house. Putting new flooring in, uh, painting it, um, you know, any kind of maintenance that you do a home, to a home, putting uh, aluminum uh, curbs and uh, downspouts and gutters into a, a home built in the 30s, it extends the life of the home, what we call the lifespan. Lifespan of a home is supposed to be economically, you know, 65 or 70 years old. Well, we know there's lots of homes in Vancouver that are 100-plus years old, and the reason they're 100-plus years old is because people inherently want to always improve their pro- They always have a project going, whether it's cutting the lawns and building a fence or putting a new outdoor landscaped area in for their, for their enjoyment, um, new flooring, new kitchens, new bathrooms, whatever it might be. Whenever they do that, they extend the remaining, what we call the remaining economic life, and, and, and you reduce the effective age to a newer home. But the chronological age always will still stay the same. It will be the day that the permit was taking out, taken out. Now, why that's important, Martin, is, is when, when you go to apply for a mortgage and the mortgage payments are based on the amortization period, uh, the number of years that that uh, mortgagee is going to have to make those payments. Um, so if, if the remaining economic life, for example, is less than 25 years, that means that the bank, credit union, uh, or lender is going to um, adjust those payments to the number of years that it ties in with the remaining economic life. And that's, that's a very important part of any appraisal when looking at a financial, like a refinance, is how long is that building going to be standing, and that's what the banks are concerned about. They, they want to make sure that the term of the mortgage does not expire before the house does. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, uh, the key and the reason you need uh, someone who knows what they're doing. Exactly. That's, that's Campbell and Pound. They've been in Vancouver, as we were talking earlier, since 1939. You can go to campbell-pound.com. Uh, we're talking to Dan Jones, the president of Campbell and Pound. And, uh, and I guess some houses you look at are just... Uh, are are teardowns because I hear that phrase all the time, and it seems like um, more and more uh, people are are working to save teardowns. But I guess some houses are 
they they won't survive another sale without being completely gutted or torn down. Right. Well, I mean, the city of Vancouver has a, a heritage registry. Most most cities do. North Vancouver and New West and uh, many others. Um, we, appraisers are always um, wanting to know if the property has heritage significance because if it does. Um, there, there's sometimes restrictions on whether the home can be uh, demolished or not. I mean, that's what happened in Shaughnessy. They, they put, uh, you know, restrictions on, on owners being able to tear down significant architecturally uh, uh, significant buildings. Um, when that happens, then you know you'll find that there's increased expense involved in upgrading that home to to bring it up to today's modern renovated standards or remodeled kitchens or bathrooms or whatever whatever it might be so so that's something appraisers are are always interested in there's there's extraordinary landscaping that we run into we 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 look at barns and some of the agricultural some of the hobby farms out in the valley have barns and workshops very and, and some of the workshops are significant you know they're you know, there may be $150,000 building uh, workshops in the rear of the, the, the properties, and there's things we run into like grow ops. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's not as big an issue today as it was 10 years ago because of the, the legality of marijuana now. But, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was an area that uh, appraisers were very concerned, and banks got very uh, nervous about because the... Um, the jerry-rigging that went on to grow the marijuana caused mold to run rampant throughout the uh, the frame of the house. And I've seen houses that were only 25 years old that they had to demolish because the uh, the mold was so significant uh, in the walls that they couldn't be saved. The remediation cost was basically tear the house down and start over. So... Wow. That, yeah, that's that's interesting because I, I, I guess it's not much of a problem anymore, but, uh, well, I guess it still is in a way because the remnants of uh, non-legal marijuana, but we'll we'll see where that goes. Uh, so what about the things that, uh, that you can't control in the minute or so we have left? Uh, things you can't control. What are, what are the number one things you look at, like schools nearby or, or stores or what, what makes a great location? Yeah, so appraisers look at depreciation. The, the, the first one's physical. That's that's easy. Um, you know, I can see that you need a new set of stairs because it's in need of repair and it's old. Second one is functional obsolescence. Functional obsolescence is when you've got um, the, the building styles change over time, and because of that, it could be too expensive to change to today's building codes. Um, it's not going to be economically feasible to make that change. So it might be a situation where you've got a two-bedroom home and the market wants a three- or a four-bedroom home now. So it's going to be too expensive for you to, to change that. And then the third most important, and we always hear it in real estate, is location, location, location. So uh, locational obsolescence. Um, examples would be, um, you know, you're, you're living in your neighborhood and um, you're sort of on a main street, but you know, you were okay when you bought the property, but all of a sudden the property across the street puts an application in for a gas station. And um, that's, that's probably um, one of the types of buildings you probably don't want to be backing onto. 
there are many homes that back onto those types of properties, or they come along and throw a SkyTrain uh, guyway right behind you. You know, now you've got some some issues with uh, sound and, and noise yeah. and uh, you know uh, enjoyment of your property. That's right. Uh, or or I move next door, and that that becomes a problem. <laughs> uh, well, Dan, we are out of time, but I just want to thank you so much. It's always interesting to talk real estate with you. Dan Jones is the president of Campbell and Pound Real Estate Appraisers. Campbell-Pound.com. If you need their services, everything you need to know about them online. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Martin. I appreciate having an opportunity. Thank you. And still to come, today is an important date in Vancouver history, if you're a hockey fan. March 26th, 1915. Something that happened has not happened since. I'll tell you about that when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong, and here's an interesting bit of Vancouver history that Canucks fans should be celebrating or maybe ignoring, I don't know, it might be depressing. It was on this day in March 26th, 1915, that a Vancouver hockey team won the Stanley Cup. That was 107 years ago. It was the Vancouver Millionaires, and sadly, it's been the only time the Stanley Cup has made it to Vancouver. And back then, it didn't even make the front page of the newspaper. Maybe if they knew how long we would be without a cup in Vancouver, they might have made a bigger deal. But the game was played on this day, March 26th, 1915. It was the third of a best-of-five series against the Ottawa Senators. They played it at the Denman Arena in the west end of Vancouver in front of about 5,000 fans. The millionaires had dominated the Senators in the first two games. They won them both. And the final Stanley Cup winning game was said to be not all that exciting because Vancouver just kind of cruised to a 12-8 to win. For the Stanley Cup win, each of the Vancouver Millionaires players was given $300. The team would make it to the playoffs five more times, twice as the Vancouver Maroons, but they didn't win any of those games or any of those series. The team was led by a player you might know especially if you've bought a pair of skates or hockey equipment in Vancouver over the past 60 years or so. I'm talking about Fred Cyclone Taylor, the man who started Cyclone Taylor Sports, the sporting goods store. Taylor actually played for both the Ottawa Senators and the Vancouver Millionaires, but he was on the Millionaires team when they won the Stanley Cup. He's acknowledged to be one of the first superstars of the professional era of hockey. Incredible speed and a prolific scorer. He was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1947. He got into politics in Vancouver in the 50s as a member of the BC Progressive Conservative Party. He ran in the Vancouver Centre riding in the 1952 BC general election. Didn't do that well. Finished fourth out of six candidates, though in 1952, he was elected to one term as a member of the Vancouver Park Board. Cyclone Taylor did live to see the Vancouver Canucks join the NHL. In fact, he dropped the puck in a ceremonial face-off at the Canucks' first ever NHL home game in 1970. Cyclone Taylor died in 1979 at the ripe old age of 94 and I remember as a kid being at a Canucks game when Cyclone Taylor, who was in his early 90s at the time, skated a lap around the Coliseum in between periods. 
along with his granddaughter. It was pretty cool. He was said to have never drank alcohol, smoked, or cursed. Didn't drink, smoke, or curse. Pretty amazing for a hockey player. Fred Cyclone Taylor. This is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. And when we come back, are you ready for another Winter Olympics in Vancouver? You may have a say in the next municipal election this fall. I've got that story coming up next. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.